Now, David had been looking for ways to show kindness, and one of the people that he showed kindness to was a young man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was uh, lame in his legs, and David wanted to show someone from the house of Saul, if there was anybody remaining, based upon a covenant that he had made with Jonathan, and he showed kindness to Mephibosheth. David was, in many ways, a kind man. Kindness should be one of the things that reflects your life, and maybe it's something that you need to get better at. Kindness is actually a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness is not always about being nice, but it is about being kind. I remember uh, years ago, I was coaching Little League, and there was another coach that was kind of getting under my skin and pulling some shenanigans. And I remember one of the Little League dads, we were in a little bit of a heated conflict about something that was going on. And he looked at me and he goes, Pastor Michael, you don't have to be nice. You don't. And I, I went, praise the Lord. That, that's good information. That's good to know. But we should be kind. Is there a difference? Well, kindness, if you're looking for a definition this morning, it's a good way to start. Kindness is goodness in action. Kindness is goodness in action. Kindness is going to bear itself out by deeds, by what you do, how you act, what you say to other people. Are you a kind individual? Well, Micah 6.8 says these words. He has told you, O man, Micah 6.8, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you? He wants you to be a just person. He wants you to be a kind person. He wants you to walk in humility. And so kindness is not merely goodness as a quality. It is goodness in action. It is goodness expressing itself in deeds. Peter said, putting aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. In Luke 6, 35 and 36, Jesus said, Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. For he himself, God himself, Jesus says, is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Luke 6, 35 and 36. And then you all know this verse. The Bible says, love is patient, love is kind. It is not jealous, it does not brag, and it is not arrogant. Kindness is love's expression. 1 John three sixteen says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So maybe one simple thing that you could do this new year is to say, Lord, make me a more kind person. It's not something, by the way, that you have to produce. It's something that the Holy Spirit does as a fruit in your life. Love is patient. Love is kind. There's some salvation verses that describe God's kindness. It says in Titus 3, 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. 
And then in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, just write this down for your notes. It says, God being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then in Romans 10, we are given this image by the Apostle Paul, but concerning Israel, the Lord says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God is kind. Psalm 63 says that the Lord's loving kindness is better than life. But kindness is not something that you have to necessarily respond to. Some people you try to be kind to and you frankly get a cold shoulder. And God paints this picture through the pen of Paul that all day long he extends his hands to Israel. He wants to be kind to Israel, but Israel is calloused in response to his kindness. There's some people that we say we are trying to kill them with kindness. And sometimes trying to kill people with kindness kills you. Can I get a witness? Sometimes it's just hard. You're like, I've been trying to kill this person with kindness, but frankly, I just want to kill him. <laughs> Help me, Lord. It's hard, especially when you're trying to produce kindness apart from the power of the Spirit. I remember some years ago, there was a pastor who said he was visiting an area that uh, is dominated by another religion, and everybody he was going through some of their buildings. Everybody had a phony plastic smile. He said it was almost sickening. You can see through phony kindness, can't you? I mean, it's, it's often shown in a plastic smile, but for all intents and purposes, it's not worth much. Now, sometimes we say, Lord, I'm just gonna be, try to be kind and just let the emotions follow. I know what you're saying. I'm picking up what you're putting down. That's a little manna humor for you this morning, by the way. But anyway. In Romans 2.4, it says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads you to what? To repentance. It's your kindness, O Lord, that leads us to repentance. An old hymn by Maranatha, knowing that you love us no matter what we do makes us want to love you too. But imagine how many times a day God extends his hand, he lets it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, and many people shake their fist at God and his kindness all day long. The next breath that you draw is from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, James 1.17, in whom there is no variation or shifting or shadow. God is good. And he's been so good to us. But oftentimes we live our lives like he's done nothing for us at all. And so a psalm says, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Psalm 25, verse 7. Now, David is going to, in our story, 
try to reach out in kindness. And as he casts this shadow of the Messiah, we're going to see kind of how this response happens and how it points ultimately to this kind of cosmic situation going on. Pick up the story with me. 2 Samuel 10, verse 1. 2 Samuel 10, 1. Now it happened afterwards or in the course of time, if you have the NIV, 2 Samuel 10, 1. The king of the Ammonites died and Hanun, his son, became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, and this sets the picture for a second, we're going to see that the treatment wasn't very positive. It happened in the course of time. We don't know the exact time, but it happened afterwards, says the New American Standard, the king of the Ammonites. By the way, the, the, the Ammonites were an ancient uh, enemy of Israel. In 1 Samuel 11, Saul uh, had a victory over the Ammonites. And just a side note, one of the gods of the Ammonites was a god named Molech. Molech was a terrible, detestable idol Worshipped by the people of Ammon. By the way, 1 Kings 11 says that Solomon, when he was old, because his, the many foreign women in his life pushed his heart away from God, set up a high place to Molech. And tonight, if you come back for 633, I'll tell you a little bit more about what people did to worship this God, Molech. It is disgusting and horrible. But anyway, David decided that he was going to show kindness I don't know what Nahash had done for David, but it may be that Nahash, who was the, the father of Hanun, uh, had a peace treaty with David when he was running from Saul. Nahash, by the way, his name means serpent. <laughs> or you've heard the idea of nakash. It's actually a, a word in, one of those words in Hebrew that when you say it, kind of has a sound that relates to the meaning. It means serpent or snake. And when you say, Nakash, kind of hear it, right? So David hears that Nakash or Nahash has died and his son is now ruling in his place. And David's first inclination, verse 2, is to show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash. Now, Obviously, when someone loses a loved one, we want to express condolences. And uh, we might send a letter or give a phone call or show up somewhere. And that was David's heart. David wanted to express kindness. The word kindness, I've described it to you before as we, uh, at the outset of this message. But uh, kindness in the Hebrew or loving kindness is a word that means the door of mercy in the Hebrew picture language. It's a famous word. You've probably heard it before. It's hased. And it speaks of loyal love. It speaks of the loving kindness of God, that his love never fails. It never gives up on me. He is loyal in his love. It's, it's, the, it's a word that speaks of covenant love. It's a word that is, is beautiful. And it's something that should reflect the people of God. And so David says, I want to show Hased to Hanun, the son of Nahash. I'd like to console him. So he sent a delegation. This is the end of verse 2. 
to console him concerning his father, a delegation that was representative of the king. They went out from David, representing David. And they went to, you might say, the son of the snake. (laughs) And here's what happened. The princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their new young king, their lord, verse three, do you think that David is honoring your father because he sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Oh, be careful, king, said the advisors, and these may have been military men. David's not just simply coming here to to wish you condolences and pat you on the back. Oh, no, no, no. He's got ulterior motives, and his ulterior motives is he's come to spy out your land, to see where the weaknesses are, and to one day overcome us. And they poison the well. There are some people... You live long enough in this world, you can get a little bit calloused if you've been burned enough times. And if someone tries to show you kindness, you're always looking for the attached string. Can I get a witness? What do you mean? You just want to be nice to me? What's the fine print? (laughs) Where's the string or the rope, as it were? And we live in a world like that where It's often wise to be a little bit cynical, right? Hmm. And maybe part of the reason we've become so calloused is because there's not a lot of kind people anymore. And when someone's kind to us just for the sake of kindness, it shocks us. If you open the door for somebody at a store, it's a delightful thing. And when they do it for you, You've ever had a friend of yours say, no, you go, you go, no, you go, you go, you go. Age before beauty, beauty, I don't know. Jesus, the book of Acts from the mouth of Peter says that he went around doing good. Oh, that the church would be known for going around and doing good. Amen. Sometimes the goodness and kindness that you show to people opens up the door for the gospel. By the way, people, after they find out you're a Christian, they'll watch you for a while. And you often, in our culture, look, we're in a cynical culture right now. You have to earn the right to be heard. People are automatically suspicious of many individuals, especially Christians. Why is it? Well, sometimes it's because we've shot ourselves in the foot, and sometimes it's just because of the way people are. You may be in here and maybe you're new to Christianity and you've had a friend telling you, I don't believe that stuff. Uh, I, I watched a person who claimed to be that in some context and they disappointed me and they hurt me. And sometimes there are people, maybe friends in your life, who poison the well. They say to you, oh, don't, don't bother with that stuff. That stuff's not real because they ran into a hypocrite. And I would just say to you, Don't let a hypocrite keep you out of heaven. Don't do it. It's not worth it. And so these advisors said, oh, no, 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 no. You you can't trust that this is just some sincere expression from the king of Israel. No, it can't be that. And as you see David casting the shadow of the Messiah, I think there are many people who sometimes don't want to come to Jesus 
because they've had other friends tell them, you can't trust that. Or, or people will say, don't, don't go too far with this Jesus thing, right? So you have to be careful who you listen to. And so many people have been talked out of the gracious offer that the king extends. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you, desolate. When you reject the kindness of God, what do you have left? And yet so many people do that. And God takes no pleasure in that. And so Hanun, listening to his unwise advisors, took David's servants for and shaved off half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. Now, not only, I mean, Hanun could have said, you know what, I've got some serious reservations about you guys as a delegation and what David's motives may be. Why don't you just leave the city? But he didn't do that. He treated them shamefully and shaved off half their beards. Last night, in preparation of this message, I said, honey, I'm thinking about shaving off half of my goatee vertically. And I'm just going to put up a sad picture of myself up on the screen. And I said, what do you think of that? She said, that's a terrible idea. So that's why I didn't do it. I, I even thought about preaching half of this message with my half of my goatee missing. But then I thought, you guys would be so distracted, you would not even pay attention to your Bibles. Now, in Jewish culture, my understanding is that all men wore beards. This, this is what they did. They had beards, and a beard was a sign of your manhood. And also, there are verses in the book of Leviticus and other places in the books of Moses that talk about you shouldn't be messing with your beard, and if you do, in some way, it can express uh, not keeping the law or the Torah. Here's a few. Jewish men were supposed to keep their beards intact, Leviticus 19.27, 21.5, Deuteronomy 14.1 and 2. To tamper with a man's beard was a great is, uh, insult. Except for the performance of certain religious rituals, Leviticus 14.9, Numbers 6.18, and Ezekiel 5.1, or to express profound emotional distress, Ezra 9.3, Israelite men always wore beards. To remove an Israelite male's beard was to force him to violate the Torah, Leviticus 19.27, and to show contempt for him personally, Isaiah 50, verse 6. Some of you recall that in the prophecies about the death of the Messiah, it does indicate that they tore out his beard. And in so doing, <clears throat> there was a deeper expression than just simply mockery or another way to humiliate an individual. For a Jewish man to do this, it was something where you're trying to get him humiliated and in some ways to defile his commitment to the Torah, to the law. And so this is what they did. They treated these men with scorn and they shaved off half of their beards and I would assume vertically and then they cut off half of their garments. And if you read commentaries on this, 
the half of their garments probably means that they were exposed and humiliated like prisoners of war. They left, they sent them away with half their beards and half their clothes. And I won't give you any more detail, but I think you can understand what's going on here. If you've ever been humiliated by somebody, if you've ever had somebody do something shameful to you in front of others to mock you, you're starting to get a little bit of the picture of what happened here. They, they shaved them, they, they took their clothes and they sent them packing and they had to walk in disdain and, and I'm sure that they, people were laughing at them and sent them away. Sad. Why, why do people do stuff like this? Why do people find such glee in mocking others and especially, I'll say to you, in mocking Christians? We go out as the delegation of the Lord. We're ambassadors of the Most High God, sent by the greater David into the world as though God were pleading through us for people to be reconciled to God. And sometimes the treatment we get is shameful. And what are we trying to do? I mean, we have brothers and sisters that are literally being killed for trying to share the hope of Christ. Well, David's men were shamed. The New Living Translation says, Hanun seized David's ambassadors, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their robes at the buttocks, and sent them back to David in shame. Packing, embarrassed, shaved. And all for what reason? Because they wanted to console the new king. When they told it to David, verse 5, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. How long does it take a beard to grow back? Well, it depends on your ability to grow facial hair. Some people can grow a beard in three hours. Have you met somebody like this? You say how long has it been since you shaved? I shaved at two. Man, you got a 15 o'clock shadow. Forget about a five o'clock shadow. What's up with you, brother? And then there's other people who grow hair, but not in the places where they want hair. You talk to some people and they say, there's hair growing out of my ears and stuff like that on my back, but I can't grow it where I'd like to locate it. What in the world's going on? It's a fallen world, brother. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I can say to you. One writer says, new beards don't always erase old wounds. How long does it take to get your dignity back? You may be in here this morning and something happened over the holidays and man, you're, you're trying to figure out how to deal with a wound. Someone said something sideways to you. Someone humiliated you. Some of you can remember a statement made to you on a childhood playground. That's how deep wounds can go. Words do hurt. And actions like this obviously make it even worse. Jericho, by the way, if you look at verse 5, stay in Jericho until your beards grow, 
was the first Israelite settlement west of the Jordan River on the main road back to Jerusalem. Here's the application. David comforted these men in their humiliation, spared their dignity. He allowed for their honor to be restored. This way they wouldn't have to face their families, friends, and stand shamed in the royal court. David said, just stay there. And oftentimes when we're hurting, thinking about David casting the shadow of Jesus, that's what Jesus says to us. He allows us to regain our dignity. He doesn't bring up the old wounds and the old mistakes that we've all made. Praise God. He's no longer counting our sins against us. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? Certainly not I. So David allowed them to get their dignity back. He let them stay in Jericho. Now, when the sons of Ammon, six, saw that they had become odious to David, one version says a stench in David's nostrils, this is what they saw. The sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans, some of your versions will say the Syrians, of Beth Rehob, the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, the king of Makkah, this guy was an ancient car dealer in the area of Boston, <laughs> Makkah, Ma- sorry, I just... With 1,000 men. (laughs) Pastor John gave that to me this week. And I told him if it bombed, I was going to blame him. So there you go. And the men of Tob with 12,000 men. Now, the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David. But was David really angry with the men? I don't know. I know David was unhappy, certainly. But they saw it this way. Do you think sometimes people see God in a way that is not accurate to how God feels about them? Jesus said God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world would be what? Saved through him, John 3, 16 and 17. So sometimes people have this view of Jesus or God that's not accurate. And so... They saw this and they began to hire what we would call military mercenaries. They thought, well, if David comes to war against us, we can't handle that and we've made him angry. But here's the deal. Why did you make him angry? You didn't need to do that. You don't need to tug on the tiger's tail. Some people, I just, I just pick a little bit. I pick, see what happens. Why do you do that? Well, they started to hire mercenaries. Write down 1 Chronicles 19.6. They hired troops from the north, including Syrians, Arameans. They hired 33,000 soldiers, if you do the math on the passage we just read. They joined the Ammonite army in attacking the Jewish army. You try to fight God... It's a losing battle. Your arms are too short to box with God. But people do it. The end of the book of Revelation says that people are going to line up for the battle of Armageddon and fight against God. Can you imagine being one of the soldiers? Where'd they say he's coming from, Fred? Well, somewhere up there. Get Get your cannon ready. What in the world? 
The Egyptian army realized they were fighting against God when he opened the sea for the people of Israel. Not a good idea to fight against the creator of the universe. But people do it. I, I think I'll fight him. What? And so they begin to gather this army. When David heard of it, he sent Joab, his chief commander, all the, and all the army, the mighty men. Here's David's mighty men, which we'll read more about later. And it looks like he just put the army on standby. And the sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, or the, their city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah, <laughs> trying to get over the car thing now, anyway, were by themselves in the field. Their army was ready to advance in battle. They assembled in the capital, which was called Rabbah. Other troops they had recruited were from the surrounding nations took a position separate in the open country. The war was on. Sadly, none of this had to happen. How did this start? David was trying to console the son of the snake. And now, full-scale war. Unnecessary. They've spent a ton of money to try to hire these mercenaries. Now, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he had the people of Ammon, he had the other ones that were hired from the north, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. Warren Wearsby says, Joab faced two armies who were using what's called a pincer movement to defeat Israel. But the Syrians and Arameans coming from the north and the Ammonites coming from the south. Joab wisely divided his forces and put his brother Abishai in charge of the southern front. And with the Lord's gracious help, Joab's about to defeat the northern troops as well. Notice verse 10. The remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother. He arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. And he said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, you shall help me. Literally, you shall become my salvation. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong. Let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people, for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. All of a sudden, there, were, there was enemies coming from everywhere against the people of God. And sometimes that's how the Christian life feels. Feels like we have enemies coming from every direction. And we need other brothers and sisters to stand with us and when we're not feeling strong, we need their help. And when they're not feeling strong, we can be their help. Do you have those kinds of relationships? Do you have someone that you can say, I'm not doing good, man. Pray for me. Well, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 talks about being strong and courageous, acting like men. We need to be strong. Verse 12 says, be strong. Let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people. We need to be strong. Strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How do you do that? You put on the full armor of God and you take your stand against the schemes of the devil. I was talking to a young man recently and I said, look, courage is not the absence of fear. In fact, 
I told somebody else recently, everything that God has asked me to do as a Christian has been out of my comfort zone. Can I get a witness? God, I have discovered, is in the stretching business and he never lets me stay comfortable. I prefer comfort. I like that chair that I can just hit the electronic thing. How many of you have tried those things in the store where you get the massage and you get to sit in the chair? Whoa. <laughs> like it. However, God doesn't let me stay there. He is in the stretching business. And do you know when you're being used by God and growing, when you're not comfortable and you say, I can't do this, and God says, good. Now maybe you'll rely upon me. Okay. And so Joab and the people who were with him drew near the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. By the way, it doesn't even say that they fought. It says that they drew near to the battle, and the Arameans hired mercenaries, got the silver, and said, eh, no thank you. <laughs> We're out of here. The enemy looks scary, but the Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Listen to it. Submit to God. That's the key. Resist the devil and he will flee. He will. He must. That's a Bible verse. So the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled and they went, uh-oh. And they also fled before Abishai. No record of a battle. And entered the city. They went back to their capital city. And Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. Might have came back to David and said, well, that was easy. What happened? Well, we just showed up and the guys turned tail and they're gone. Could have been God's supernatural intervention. There may have been some conflict that's not recorded here, but they bailed. And so the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel and they gathered themselves together. Now, oftentimes after the enemy flees, he does regroup. Luke 4.13 says, after the devil tempted Jesus, he left until a more opportune time. So you have one victory over the enemy. It's cool. It's good. But don't get too proud. Hey, I took care of that. The disciples came back to Jesus and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We say we use the name of Jesus and bam, people are being delivered. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now we want to get as many consistent victories as we can, but we have to be careful. Now Hedededzer, he was the previously conquered king of Zobah. You can write down, Chapter 8, verse 5, they seem to never learn because here he is. He sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river. They came to Halem and Shobach, Shobach, the commander of the army of Hedededzer, led them. Now when it was told David, 17, he gathered all Israel together, crossed the Jordan, came to Helam. 
the site we believe is about 40 miles east of the Sea of Galilee. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, 18. David killed 700 charioteers. The Chronicles account says 7,000. So there's a little bit of a, there's a transmissional question here about which number is accurate. Of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. And when all the kings of the servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. They said, basically, all the silver in the world won't make it worth it. We're not helping you guys anymore. We're not fighting against David anymore. At some point, hopefully you've become convinced not to fight the king anymore. You know, it was said of Israel that they were a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And over and over again, God had to discipline his own people to get them to wake up. And it still happens today, according to Hebrews 12, that God disciplines the sons and daughters in whom he delights. In fact, one way you know you're a Christian is if you've been disciplined lately. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but sometimes you know you belong to the Lord when you got a little spanking. And God said, don't go there anymore. And so they ended up serving David. The Arameans made peace with him. And they feared to help the sons of Ammon. And now Joab is waiting to siege the Ammonite capital of Rabbah. Now, go to chapter 12. This is the section we need to finish in this chapter. Now we get the end of the story. Now Joab, 1226, fought against Rabbah, the sons of Ammon, captured the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. I have even captured the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city, capture it lest I capture the city myself and it be named after me. And so David gathered all the people, went to Rabbah, fought against it, and captured it. Now we're talking about the, the royal city, the headquarters of Ammon. And he took the crown of their king from his head, 30. Its weight was a talent of gold, very heavy. And in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. Revelation 19.12 says of Jesus, his eyes are a flame of fire. Upon his head are many diadems or many crowns. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is king of kings, lord of lords. And in the ancient world, when a king conquered another king, he would take his crown and put it upon his head. And Jesus wears many crowns because he is king of what? Kings. He's lord of lords. He's lord of every area. The king of Ammon, by the way, didn't need to go through this, but he ended up giving up his crown. And one day, of course, Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem, as I've mentioned. And so now he took the crown. He also brought out the people who were in it, 
set them under saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes, made them pass through the brickland. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. NIV may help us here. He brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes. He made them work at brick-making. He did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. None of this had to happen. The sons of Ammon ended up paying incredible consequences. And for what? To fight against the king. And one day there are going to be people who knock on the door, and this is in many of the kingdom parables, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, open for us. And Jesus is going to say to them, I never knew you. By the way, it doesn't say, I knew you once and now, you know, you've blown it. It says, I never knew you. Now, as we are getting ready to take communion, we have a couple of parables I want to mention. I'm going to take you over to John's Gospel, John 15. And I want you to think about this delegation that came to, Jesus, came to uh, this king, Hanun, representing Jesus. Jesus said to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Jesus takes persecution personally. And when Jesus came to the planet, he told these kingdom parables about a father having a wedding for his son and inviting guests, but the guests began to make excuses. And he talked about the parable of the vineyard. And he said that those who were renting the vineyard realized that the son was the heir. They said, come, let us kill him and take the vineyard. And he would tell stories about, what do you think the, the Lord of the vineyard will do to those people? What do you think's gonna happen? And Jesus arrives on the planet. No one ever spoke like him. No one ever did the miracles that he did. He unstopped the ears of the deaf he opened the eyes of the blind. He delivered demonically possessed people. He spoke to the sea and it was calmed. He raised the dead. And the religious leadership, instead of acknowledging him and acquiescing to his kingship, they knew who he was. They sought to kill him. And in John 15, read Verses 24 through 27 with me. Jesus, getting ready to go back to the Father, says these words. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, or had done, 15, 24, no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. They have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And then he says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. They hated me without a cause. I want you to just take a moment, picture the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows, and picture your suffering king. 
How did they treat him? He came on a mission of mercy, a mission of consolation, a mission of kindness. And he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. And there they beat him with that cat of nine tails and opened up his body. And there they made him carry the death instrument of the cross. And they plucked out his beard and they spit in his face and they exposed him. Did they rip out half of his beard to shame him? There are many scholars that believe they derobed him as well. They shamed him in every possible way. Do you see the connection? They did this to the king. And they should have done it to me. The Bible says that Jesus bore my shame. He despised the shame, but he did it for me. He was humiliated instead of me. He was exposed instead of me. He bore my penalty at the cross. And he did it for love. And the cross stands at the center, the precipice of time. And you have two options. You can either receive the Jesus who died on that cross and rose from the dead and see that God's demonstrating his love for you at the cross, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you, or you can say no. Spurgeon said, if you can walk by that cross, see the crimson flow, the blood that comes down, and remain unmoved, there's something wrong with you. This is how God loved you. This is the mission of mercy he came on. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is the message that we preach. God's kindness and love for us in Christ Jesus. Have you met him? Do you know him personally? Have you trusted in him for your salvation? To be your king, your Lord, your friend, your hope? Father, as we uh, get ready to take the elements of communion and we thank you that we have an opportunity to remember, Jesus, what you went through for us, how you were pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon you, and by your wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him, the king, the iniquity of us all. Pilate, surprised, said, you're a king? Jesus said, you say rightly, I'm a king. For this reason I've been born, to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? Well, Jesus said, you are the truth. You said, you are the way, you are the life. And so many in this room, Lord, have come to know your royalty, the beauty of who you are. And I thank you for them. I, I pray that they would be encouraged and blessed. 
if you keep your head and heart bowed, if you've not met him, if you've been running from him, if you've been fighting him, if you've had others poison the well and tell you, oh, you can't trust that, would you surrender to him in this new year? Make him your king. Set him apart as Lord of your life in every aspect. And he'll bless you beyond what you could ask or imagine. Something like this, and I just want to give you an opportunity if you're not a Christian. Jesus prayed, if it's you, come into my life. Thank you that you died on that cross for me. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I trust you. Be my Lord, be my Savior. Be my King. Be my God. Father, for those who are opening up their hearts, may you bless them. May you remove their burdens as they come to you. May you bring them comfort and consolation. For the rest of your church, Lord, I pray that as we come to your table, we'll just be refreshed and blessed. In Jesus' holy name I pray.